This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the June 10th special edition of Global Dialogue. I'm Patrick Ryan, President of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that is important to every American, the dangerous challenge to a fundamental aspect of our democracy, the free and fair election of our leaders and representatives. Four years ago, elements of the Russian government were busy working to influence the 2016 presidential election. In October of 2016, the Secretary of Homeland Security and intelligence community officials said so. In January of 2017, the intelligence community released a report that said, Russian efforts to influence the 2016 U.S. presidential election represent the most recent expression of Moscow's longstanding desire to undermine the U.S.-led liberal democratic order. But these activities demonstrated a significant escalation in directness, level of activity, and scope of effort compared to previous operations. We assess Russian President Vladimir Putin ordered an influence campaign in 2016 aimed at the U.S. presidential election. Russia's goals were to undermine public faith in the U.S. democratic process, denigrate Secretary Clinton, and harm her electability and potential presidency. We further assess Putin and the Russian government developed a clear presence preference for President-elect Trump. Furthermore, the Mueller report, an exhaustive investigation into the election interference, concluded the Russian government, quote, interfered in the 2016 presidential election in sweeping and systematic fashion and, quote, violated U.S. criminal law. This year, a bipartisan group, the Senate Intelligence Committee, lended their voice to the same conclusion. Serious and pernicious attempts were made to derail the free, free and fair vote for our president in 2016. So now we're entering the final phase of choosing the next president. It is shaping up as the most important election of our lifetimes. There is no indication that Russia is backing off the sweeping interference efforts in our election process, and for that matter, in other areas of American society where foreign powers have been meddling. Last fall, the World Affairs Council hosted Malcolm Vance, an expert on the 2016 Russian interference. It was an extensive conversation on the background and context of that episode. You can catch that podcast at soundcloud.com slash TNWAC. Today, we have two exceptional speakers on the topic of foreign interference in the American electoral process. Rachel Dean Wilson and David Salvo come to us from the Alliance for Securing Democracy. Their conversation will be guided by Mark Braden, a member of the board of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. I now hand over to Mark to start our program. Thanks, Pat. It's my pleasure to moderate today's panel and be with our guests. Uh, we saw just last night in Georgia the importance of a clear and quite frankly, a non-chaotic voting process that the American people can trust the outcome of. Our, like you said, our guests are from the Alliance for Securing Democracy, uh, Rachel and David. Uh, they'll educate us on what happened in 2016, what we should expect in the 2020 elections with regards to foreign interference, election integrity, and dis disinformation. Before we hear from them, I want to first introduce them. Uh, Rachel Dean Wilson. Uh, Rachel currently serves as the head of external affairs for ASD, but comes to ASD with a diverse and impressive resume, including as comms director to Senator John Kyle of Arizona and a regional comms director for Whole Foods 
Uh, Rachel also most notably worked for the late Senator John McCain in various communications roles, most notably uh, as, as his communications director in the Senate uh, and, and on the 2008 presidential campaign in the communications role. She's a uh, alumna of University of Penn and is a native Arkansan. Uh, next, David Salvo. David is a deputy director of the Alliance for Securing Democracy and a senior fellow at the German Marshall Fund. Before coming to this role, he served as Deputy Secretary of State's Policy Advisor for Europe, Eurasia, and International Security Issues. He's a double Hoya with a bachelor's degree and master's degree from Georgetown University in Washington, DC. Uh, so with that, uh, we'll first hear from, from David, uh, open your remarks, and we'll have kind of a, uh, and Rachel, and kind of a Q&A back and forth, and uh, hopefully learn a lot from ASD. So thanks so much, guys, and, and David's all yours. Mark, thanks so much, and thanks, Pat, in the World Affairs Council for having us. Um, we'll try to keep our remarks brief because really we want to engage in a back and forth with with all of your members, the participants in today's discussion. But you know, really, it's it's a treat for us to be doing this. Although we wish we were in Nashville having the conversation in person, but we do what we can in these strange times. Um, Rachel and I and other members of our team have been engaged in these bipartisan trips across the United States to try to um, overcome some of the politicization of what we see, frankly, as an, a threat and an issue that really should garner bipartisan consensus. So the whole notion that there are authoritarian regimes who are actively trying to undermine our elections, actively trying to meddle in our democratic institutions, that, that really should be something that Democrats and Republicans agree on. And in fact, that was the whole impetus behind the birth of our organization. Um, Rachel and I come from opposite sides of the aisle. Um, there are probably a whole host of issues we don't agree on, but we do agree on the fact that, you know, our democracy is under siege. And while a lot of the problems are, all the problems are caused by us Americans ourselves, they're exacerbated and amplified um, by all of these authoritarian actors in very covert and corrupting ways. And that these are the types of issues that we as an organization focus on and are trying to generate more awareness around the country so that we could overcome this, this uh, partisanship. So let me start a bit by how you know, we view what happened in 2016. Obviously there are all these, there's the Mueller report, there's the bipartisan Senate Intelligence Committee report. We don't need to go into all the ins and outs of what happened in 2016. But I do want, as somebody who has lived in Russia and has studied Russia essentially for my entire career, um, I just want to offer a few thoughts on what might have been driving Russian motivations in 2016, because that seems to be a particularly polarizing part of the interference um, four years ago. So where we get lost, I think, as a sort of as a body politic is in thinking about the Russian operation against the 2016 uh, election as singularly um, in favor of Donald Trump or against Hillary Clinton. And sure, there were elements of that at play as you know, both Republicans and Democrats on the Intelligence Committee concluded, as the US Intelligence Committee uh, community, uh, reported. But it's bigger than that. Sure, there's a longstanding animosity towards Hillary Clinton in Moscow uh, in the Kremlin from her tenure as Secretary of State in particular. There was a perception of Donald Trump as an outsider and business-friendly candidate who just wanted to you know, get things done, repair the relationship, remove sanctions, 
and sort of engage in normalizing trade relations. Um, but really what the essence of the Russian operation in 2016 was much deeper than support for Donald Trump. Um, when the Russian government decided to interfere, to start this operation against the uh, election back in 2014 or 15, I guarantee there was not a single person sitting in the Kremlin who thought Donald Trump would actually become president of the United States. Uh, and I say that, you know, at, you know, I come at this as, as a Democrat. This is not like, there's no sour grapes here. I just, I don't think there are many Americans in 2014 or 2015 who thought that Donald Trump would become president of the United States. So there had to have been some overarching motivation besides just trying to elect what at that time seemed like a wholly unelectable candidate. And that motivation really is this desire to upend democracy, to make democracy seem chaotic, unpredictable, unreliable, and to make the United States in particular seem like a genuine basket case of democracy. Now, there are domestic and foreign policy considerations driving this decision in Moscow. If you're an authoritarian regime, if you're Vladimir Putin sitting in the Kremlin, and you're a kleptocrat and an autocrat, and it's quite clear that you fear free and fair elections, it is really useful to have an external boogeyman that you could point the finger to for to your citizens to show that democracy is messy, democracy doesn't work. And look, the number one democracy in the entire world can't even hold an election without Americans being up in arms about who's the actual you know, free and fair elected uh, candidate. So there's a domestic consumption for this narrative and a domestic motivation behind this external operation. Um, and I'd say they were pretty successful in that regard because all over Russian state media, they were driving this narrative uh, about our inability to hold an election without essentially descending into chaos. And look, here we are, you know, three, four years after the fact, still debating what happened in 2016. On the foreign policy side, if your number one adversary is so consumed by domestic politics and, and getting its own internal house of cards in order, that could benefit you on the world stage. You know, if, if the next administration is so distracted that it can't pay attention to issues that Russia cares about, like Ukraine, like Syria, isn't that to the Kremlin's benefit? So I think this was part of the calculus going on in the Kremlin, aside from, you know, who ultimately would win the election in the White, you know, and, and make it their way into the White House. There was this notion that undermining American democracy, undermining the election would be inherently beneficial for domestic and foreign policy reasons in Moscow. So here we are in 2020, we're on the eve of another election. The calculus is still pretty similar, I'd argue, for Moscow. Now, of course, there are other actors um, as well this time around. The, the Chinese and the Iranians in particular, those are two other regimes that we spend a lot of time analyzing as an organization. Um, I'd say they're not sort of singularly focused on this election, but they have started to adopt more of the tactics that Russia has used over the last several years. But Russia is still the primary actor trying to upset this liberal democratic order. What happened to us in 2016, what has happened since all the information operations that it, the Russians have run against us on social media, um, all the probing of electoral infrastructure that has been ongoing, you know, this is part of the continuum of activity that Russia has undertaken for decades, really, against the democratic world. So, you know, the United States isn't necessarily unique in this regard. There's a long body of evidence of 
um, Russian interference in democracies across Europe, in the United States, and what's happening now should be seen in that regard as well. Um, so again, today, you know, we, we are in a, a strange time. There's a pandemic that adds a whole new dimension of complexity to the challenge of securing our election. Um, and these are complexities that foreign actors like Russia can seize on and exploit, both from an election administration and infrastructure security angle, from a public health angle. Um, you know, in 2016, there was a concerted effort by the Russian government to plant disinformation on social media to mislead voters about how, when, and where to vote. Now we have an added dimension of complexity because of the pandemic where voters may not know how, when, and where to vote. And it is very easy in, the, in that type of environment for foreign actors to amplify and exacerbate that confusion um, to make the electoral process seem like it can't be trusted. So, you know, Rachel's gonna go into a lot of the threats that we see today. I'd say pandemic aside, we're a lot better off today than we were in March, 2016, or March, June, 2016, mostly because there's a general recognition of the problem, of the threat. There is action being taken in all levels of government, state, local, and federal, to try to secure electoral infrastructure the social media platforms are at least recognizing that there's a disinformation problem on their platform that Russia, China, and Iran are taking advantage of, and have taken at least some steps, not entirely sufficient, but some steps to try to secure their platforms. So, you know, it's a sea change in terms of the overall environment, the threat environment. Um, and I think that's positive, but that's not to say that we should be resting on our laurels and assume that, you know, the integrity of our election is going to be fine at, without any sort of foreign interference um, come November, you know, we're already seeing some of these operations ongoing today and we have been over the past several months. So why don't I stop there and turn it over to Rachel, who will focus more specifically on what we're noticing today. Thanks so much, Dave. And thank you, Pat and Mark uh, and the Tennessee World Affairs Council for having us. Uh, we obviously think this is an incredibly important conversation and are really excited to engage with everyone. Um, so let me start by just underscoring a point that, that Dave just made, um, but when we're talking about foreign interference, uh, our director at ASD, Laura Rosenberger, likes to often say chaos is the point. And so it's great to remember that, um, you know, it's not about one candidate or another, it's about making uh, American democracy uh, look, look a mess and, uh, and underscoring um, you know, sowing doubt in our system. Um, and I would say in the current environment in the United States, um, between the changes to our election process uh, due to the coronavirus pandemic, um, from the protests and unrest across the country to general polarization in our politics, um, there's plenty of domestic chaos that we are creating ourselves uh, that, that doesn't need, that foreign actors don't need to make up. Um, but they are here to amplify that and take advantage of it. And um, I think that's on us as a nation, but also um, as local communities to make sure that we are doing everything we can uh, to bolster our, our democratic institutions and our democracy. Um, 
So I, really quickly before we get into the Q&A, I'm just going to walk through some of the uh, big developments we've seen in 2020 uh, on the disinformation front, uh, election security, and a little bit on hack and leak. But what those three tools were really what you saw in 2016 um, utilized by uh, the Russian campaign. And so uh, we can go in in the Q&A to any 2016 details uh, that might be of interest. Um, but I'm really interested in what, what those look like now and what we're kind of seeing, how we're seeing that threat emerge. Um, so on the election security front, Dave mentioned this, but we are definitely better off in that there is more coordination on the federal, state, and local level across the board. Uh, as far as election security goes. Uh, much more education, much more awareness. And I think uh, that, you know, acknowledging the threat and working together on it is half the battle, uh, but it doesn't get us across the line. Um, it's important to remember that we are still talking about securing 8,000 different, over 8,000 election jurisdictions. Um, and those are run by different different rules, different state laws. Uh, and so that's a lot of entry points if you're looking to compromise a system. Um, and so, and on top of all of that, just the sheer volume, uh, there's a pandemic going on that is going to significantly impact how elections are run in states. It already has um, is on the primary front. Um, and so what we're going to need to see from local officials and state officials on this front is clear communication as far as what voters can expect uh, with updated and new election procedures um, and, and, and a plan and some practice. And I think we saw in Georgia last night kind of a trifecta of, of issues. Um, these are not related to foreign actors, but this is, we got to get our ducks in a row in order to make our system as strong as it can possibly be. Um, and so we saw new voting machines uh, and then a decrease in the number of poll workers available uh, due to the pandemic and a decrease in the number of polling locations. So all of those coming together uh, created a, a pretty chaotic environment in Georgia um, and one that if we see again in November, um, there is going to be, that's, that, is, that is creating a ripe environment for, for disinformation. Um, and so I think there are a lot of tips and lessons that can be learned from that one, one instance. Um, and yeah, clear communication, sorry. Um, one other thing I will say on that front is that from local leaders to public, to the public, to journalists, um, we kind of need to change our mindset as far as what we expect on election night. And I think that there will likely be delays in voting uh, in November. Uh, and, and talking about that in the right way, preparing the public for it, having journalists ready to fill, you know, election night reporting without all the returns, you know, what, what do you do at that time slot uh, is going to be very important. And um, so I will head over to the disinformation and information manipulation front. Uh, but as I said, what I described with election security lends itself very well to disinformation and, and that being taken advantage of um, by domestic actors, but also by foreign actors who are 
wanting to call the integrity of the election um, into question or just cause confusion. Um, and so we need to be able to have clear communication and information in order to overcome that. Um, so we at the Alliance for Securing Democracy have a tool that tracks information operations or information manipulation by uh, Russia and China, and it's called Hamilton 2.0. And so we look at the state-backed media um, and the official diplomatic accounts and track how their, the, their overarching narratives that they're pushing throughout you know, primaries or on issues of the day. And, and a couple of interesting findings from that tool. Um, the first is if you can even remember the pre-pandemic life back when we were all paying attention to the Democratic Party, uh, it was interesting to see that they'd kind of taken the 2016 playbook and just moved it forward to 2020 because we saw a lot of uh, coverage of the Democratic Party or of the Democratic primary uh, that was attempting to divide the Democrats. So it's claims of a rigged election. It's the establishment, um, you know, conspiring against Bernie. Uh, plenty of plenty of mainstream media bashing. Um, but it's it's important because it's not just about a, a preference for one candidate over another. But it's okay within this slice of what is happening. How can we push division and how can we push those narratives? Uh, that are going to to make people fight it out on Twitter and and kind of raise that that dialogue in the wrong way. <laughs> um, and so that was that was really interesting. Um, once we hit, and that was from the Russian perspective. Once we hit uh, coronavirus, one thing I want to note that's incredibly interesting. Um, is we saw a real shift in the information manipulation and disinformation uh, strategy of China. And so up until that point, uh, China had been a much more kind of uh, positive, let me tell the positive side of this story for China uh, in their state-backed media and diplomatic accounts. And there was a real uh, push, actually disinformation coming out of uh, some of the official Chinese uh, diplomatic accounts. And so you saw them raising the idea of what if the coronavirus, um, it, it could have started in the United States. Uh, and just this real tactical shift that I think we will continue to see play out as they kind of navigate this new world uh, that we are all trying to figure out how to navigate at the moment. Um, if that comes into play specifically with the 2020 race, remains to be seen. And then finally, uh, I'll just touch on quickly the hack and leak campaign. Um, so I think we all remember from 2016 uh, when the Hillary Clinton campaign was hacked and then the emails were distributed and, and our, our US media was only too happy uh, to kind of help amplify that and get that out there. Um, for, for the Russians and really impacting the campaign. I mean, I think that was probably the most successful uh, operation we saw from them. Um, and it had a real, a real impact uh, as far as changing the news cycle and the conversation in a couple of, of different points. So um, that is still very much uh, a possibility. We have less insight into it because of covert operations. But I will say that last week, Google announced that both the Trump and the Biden campaign 
had been um, targeted by spear phishing campaigns, similar to what we saw in 2016. But the interesting thing is we're talking about um, spear phishing attempts from Iran and China this time. So we don't know what the intentions are behind that, uh, but it is interesting to note and important that this isn't just a Russia space anymore, that we are, we have uh, multiple actors that are looking to, to interfere in our democracy. Um, and so that's, that's the quick overview. We'll get into this a lot more, um, but at the core of this issue um, is the strength of our democracy and we can defend it and we can work to secure it, but at the end of the day, it has to be strengthened from within. And I think we're working through a lot right now in this country, um, but we have an opportunity to come out the other side, a much stronger democracy. And so I just, I hope, I encourage all of you to take it. Um, and with that, I'll send it back over to Mark. Thanks, Rachel and David, really appreciate it. Um, for those that are watching from home, uh, if you have any questions, please uh, go into the chat and we'll try to get, get through as many as possible. Um, Rachel, one thing that I heard from, your, uh, from, from what you said, um, not having election results on election night is like telling my kids they can't open their presents till January 10th, um, their Christmas presents till January 10th. It's gonna be a, um, uh, there's nothing like watching political prognosticators fill time uh, for two weeks. Um, it's gonna be, it's gonna be bad. Uh, it's gonna well, be bad. And I will just say, I think um, we got a preview of it, Iowa caucus night, and it was not a promising preview. Uh, it was that we didn't have a lot of information coming out from the Democratic Party of Iowa. Um, folks were on air with nothing to say. So there's a dangerous, that's dangerous. That's yeah. very dangerous. For a so um, since we are the Tennessee World Affairs Council, um, we're going to turn to Tennessee. Uh, we're five weeks away uh, from early voting in our primary. And we're uh, 126 days until early voting for the general begins. So we're, um, you know, early voting is the, is the first time people can show up and vote here in Tennessee. In addition to absentee, we're absentee voting in Tennessee. Historically, only 2% of our electorate has, has taken, taken part in absentee, mail-in absentee, assuming that number will go up. But at the end of the day, states and, states and counties oversee our elections, not, not the federal government. Um, Tennessee has a great Secretary of State, Trey Hargett. And I wanted to read you a couple quotes um, as, as he talks about this. One is, he said, he's, quote, training county election commissioners on how to ID and not fall for spear phishing emails, saying, we have found one of the most effective ways of getting people to click on these emails is a Chick-fil-A gift card. He also said a member of his election commission IT staff in one county is also the janitor of that county's courthouse. So again, as states and specifically counties are running our country's elections, what, what can local county and state governments do to combat this type of foreign interference short of not clicking on Chick-fil-A gift card emails? What else can they do? I'm happy to start off there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's tempting. Chick-fil-A is delicious, but, um, but yes, that's number one. I mean, general awareness and cyber hygiene, which is what I believe he was he was referring to there uh, is a step in the right direction as a baseline good practice for uh, how local and state officials need to approach uh, their election systems generally. Um, but I think 
like stepping back from the actual systems that good communication here is key, uh, both with those that are running elections on the local level and with the general public. I can't underscore that enough. I think we see it from the top uh, all the way down to local local officials sometimes uh, that it's just, it's not clear what the expectations are, who has the right information and where to go to get it. Uh, and that picture is getting a lot murkier. Um, so clear communications is uh, key. Um, I would say uh, building trust uh, with, with those channels as far as your local versus state officials, making sure that everyone is, is working together on that front. Um, and then building resiliency within the community. They need to know what to expect on election night. Um, and so if, if we have, if we have the ability to, um, to prep the broader public on that front, we should take it. Uh, I will give uh, my colleague, our elections integrity fellow, David Levine, a little plug here. He actually has an election security handbook uh, that I'm happy to send to anyone and I'll definitely send over to the World Affairs Council. Uh, but it looks at steps that local election officials can take without spending a ton more money or passing legislation. And so that can include anything from making sure that you have a verified.gov email, or sorry, not email, website, um, you know, to running kind of practice runs as far as training goes for your poll workers, uh, or if you have new voting machines. Uh, Dave, did you have something to add? I just wanted to foot stop the, the clear communication and transparency with local communities. And the reason that's so important is because, especially let's assume Rachel's prediction is right and there are going to be delays in voter reporting, vote reporting on election night. There's going to be this empty, there's going to be this vacuum, this information vacuum. And foreign actors like the Russian government are going to be happy to step into that vacuum and plant and exact and amplify narratives that say the process is rigged you can't trust the vote tally you know everything has gone wrong if american voters especially on the local level right if local communities have heard from their local officials here are all the steps that we have taken in the run-up to the election to ensure the integrity of this vote then americans will have greater confidence on election night that delay or no delay pandemic or no pandemic what's what you know happened on election night is should be you know trusted uh, and Americans could go to sleep with confidence that you know their electoral process is secure. So if there's new voting equipment being rolled out, if there are new procedures in place for how to vote, if there are new absentee vote procedures like there may be in Tennessee, like it's imperative on the trusted vo voices in local communities to be communicating this to, to their constituents. Otherwise, how are Americans gonna know that they can you know, trust what they read in the papers the next day or what they read on Facebook and Twitter that may be planted by foreign operatives. So, you know, just to foot stomp that point there, Rachel did. Sure, and I think you already see um, a bipartisan, and it's a question from one of our, 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 our attendees, um, you already kind of see the topic of election interference becoming hyper-partisan. Um, you saw uh, a governor's race um, that still the outcome uh, to some is still up in the air. Um, and I think even President Trump in 2016 would, uh, he, he, he even referenced the fact that he wouldn't uh, deem the outcome of the election, uh, he wouldn't accept the outcome of the election. Um, so as, as, as we go to our corners on 
on this issue. How can those listening and those that will watch this on the various uh, channels uh, succeed with bipartisan dialogue on this issue? Like what's, what is, you know, where, you know, your handbook, what other, uh, what other resources or, or things can we look for to ensure that this is a, we're, we're, we're finding bipartisan, bipartisan solutions in the face of partisan problems. I'm happy to start this time, Rachel, go after me. So I think on the local level, there is um, one thing that we've observed, I think, as we've traveled outside of Washington, gotten out of the Beltway bubble and engaged with local politicians, local communities, is that there's a greater willingness to work across the aisle and even talk to each other and talk to constituents in, in you know, a bipartisan environment. So you know, ultimately it's gonna be incumbent on Republicans and Democrats, not necessarily to find solutions, especially this close to the election, but to at least be talking from the same sheet. Here's the threat, we recognize this is a threat. Here is what has been done to ensure that our vote is going, to, can be trusted. So I think, you know, it sounds kind of cliche and, and basic, but, you know, when we were in Charlotte, we had local members of like the Charlotte City Council on both sides of the aisle saying, you know, we have this podcast that goes out to all the, you know, our, all of our listeners and like we could, we could talk about this issue and why it's important and how we're securing the 2020 vote, you know, from a bipartisan framework uh, in that context. So, you know, it's ultimately going to have to be a bottom up uh, and not a top down driven process because Washington seems hopelessly partisan at this point. Um, but I think there's more encouraging uh, trends on, on the local level. I would agree with with David that that state and local, we've seen the most bipartisan um, work on this, but I'll be a little more optimistic on the federal side uh, in that uh, we have seen the bipartisan Senate intelligence report that did an in-depth uh, investigation into what happened in 2016 and came out with clear conclusions that that senators on both sides of the aisle stand behind and I think that is really important to remember. Um, I also think that if you if you talk to to members on the hill there is for the most part a shared understanding of what happened and what this threat is. Um, I think when you're talking because of the politicized Wow, because this has been politicized, um, that uh, you know there's a little hesitancy to go all in on the on the Russia side, but we've seen um, lots of bipartisan interest in combating disinformation generally, uh, in looking at how China is also trying to interfere in our democracy, uh, and actors like Iran, uh, and so I, I do think that there's a recognition of what happened, and there is a recognition of the problem. I'd also say that uh, DHS, uh, the Department of Homeland Security, has really stepped up its game as far as um, election security and disinformation goes, and so I, I think that although what I would love to hear is from the top that we are all combating this together as Americans, um, and this is the challenge we face, uh, that on that that level of, of what the different departments are doing, they're actually working toward um, toward meeting this threat. 
Um, and so and that's from the intelligence community to the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, we've seen coordination and willingness to call out these foreign actors uh, that are continuing to try to interfere in our elections. Uh, so we, we do have that going for us. Um, and so I would, I would uh, stay tuned and heed all of those warnings uh, that they are sending out and have been throughout the year. Um, and then also look to, look to ways that you can kind of bolster the democratic institutions you're involved with every day. Thanks. Uh, I'm, I'm going to try to paraphrase a couple questions. Uh, I'll wrap all into one um, here. So bear with me. Um, you know, we, you said you were better prepared to respond to the threat of foreign interference now that we're not in 2020 than we were in 2016. Can you expand on that a little bit? I think some folks are asking, um, you know, obviously this is a, a, the, the Hardeman County, Tennessee Election Commission uh, has the same responsibility as the Bucks County, Pennsylvania Election Commission, right? Um, but how are we better prepared? And are, are there any, I guess a, a better way to look at this, are there any ways, any areas in which we're less prepared or behind the curve heading into uh, 2020? Uh, we'll, go, we'll go to Dave and then to Rachel. So I would, I would echo what Rachel alluded to in our previous response, that there's, there's a mismatch between the rhetoric we hear, from, especially from sort of the top, and what's actually happening on the ground in Washington and on the local level. So there's, first of all, we're, we're ahead of the curve because we actually know, we know that there is a threat to our elections this time around. If you think back to the summer or spring of 2016, first of all, the Obama administration didn't really put this together until you know sometime in the summer. And there was a lack of consensus that there was a threat at all. So here, at least, I think Republicans and Democrats generally recognize on, on all levels of government that there are foreign actors that are seeking to, you know, probe our, the electoral infrastructure, plant disinformation across social media. These are active threats. Um, the Trump administration, as uh, Rachel was saying, has actually taken steps to improve coordination with the states and the localities on securing electoral infrastructure. So, and Congress has passed a lot, you know, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars to be allocated to the states and localities to address these hard security infrastructure issues. So that's money that wasn't available before. These are coordination mechanisms, coordination mechanisms that the Department of Homeland Security runs. There are sensors that the DHS has planted in at the state level to try to um, track and monitor foreign probing of electoral infrastructure. So these are things that didn't exist prior to you know, a year or two ago. So in that sense, we're better prepared. Um, I think we're better prepared because the social media platforms are, you know, their eyes are open at least to the fact that Russia and others are engaged in activity to try to covertly influence, or even in some cases, overtly influence the American electorate. Um, you know, we saw this in Tennessee in 2016, the, the infamous 10 GOP Twitter account, which had 100,000 followers, which was a, you know, an, an account run by the Russian troll farm, the Internet Research Agency. Um, you know, 
we know that foreign actors associated with authoritarian governments are targeting local communities like in Tennessee. Social media platforms know this. They are actively monitoring and pulling down accounts, working with the US government in, at times. There's you know, an election security war room that DHS has with you know, the social media platforms to ensure that you know, in the, in the run-up to uh, election day, there's coordination between government and industry to make sure that we, not, we don't repeat the same problem we had in 2016. So I think in that sense, we are better prepared. I think where we're still facing challenges is with the overwhelming partisanship. I think, you know, it's, it's sad that behind closed doors, you get a lot of agreement between Republicans and Democrats on how to address this problem and what the problem is. The fact that there are, as Rachel mentioned, so many bipartisan bills that were introduced in Congress to address different aspects of this challenge um, is encouraging. The fact that they haven't moved because of politics and political reasons is really, it's sad, frankly. Um, so I think that's the main impediment that we're still running up against. We still haven't figured out how to see this issue um, in a truly bipartisan manner. I second a lot of that. I'll just, I'll add, I think that uh, we're better prepared for the challenges we faced in 2016. I don't think anyone saw the new challenges that we, like the pandemic that we are facing now in 2020. And so that is a whole, that we would have to so significantly rethink how we're going to vote on election day I don't think anyone saw that coming, and I don't know that we're terribly prepared for that. Um, but I do think that that recognition of the problem uh, gets us there, and in twenty or gets us halfway there. Uh, that that that's at least part of the conversation, and part of how we're trying to adapt uh, is a step in the right direction. Thank you both. I, I, uh, I'm again trying to paraphrase. So if if any of our, our attendees have any questions, please. Put in the Q&A or the chat. Um, I have a question. This is for you, Rachel. Uh, our former boss, uh, Senator John McCain, um, many saw him as a mantle and a source of reasonable nonpartisan, you know, state statement statesman in the U.S. Senate. Um, has anyone is anyone really picked up the mantle on this and been become that stable, uh, clear-minded, uh, reasonable? You know, leader on this, either in the Senate, in, in Congress, or actually our former colleague Frank LaRose in Ohio has done a lot as Secretary of State there. As any elected officials in Washington or elsewhere, you want to point to and say, that is somebody who's doing this the right way and leaving politics at the at the water's edge. Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I will say that that. Most people don't stack up to John McCain in my eyes, uh, so that's kind of an unfair bar. Um, but, you know, Frank LaRose has done a great job in Ohio. That's a really good call out. Uh, I think everyone's been impressed with how transparent he's been about things uh, and really forward thinking and, and ad addressing uh, these threats and pandemic challenges that have come his way. Um, you know, we saw in the Senate, I would say the Senate Intel Committee and their leadership on the uh, Russia investigation is to be applauded. Um, and I would also say on, on the election security legislation front that James Lankford um, was really instrumental in leading that push. It's been uh, 
his bill uh, did not pass, uh, but but we, you know, he's had some, um, but definitely a, a driving force behind that. Um, yeah, I can think some more on that, but that's what comes to mind immediately. Dave, anything to add there? No, I think that's a good good cast of characters. I guess if we're talking about Ohio, Governor DeWine as well has been pretty uh, ahead of the curve on a, on a lot of these issues, so. Yeah, yeah it's, uh, um, you know, Ohio is obviously an, import, an important state and hopefully we won't be waiting until January 16th to hear how Ohio turned out. Hopefully Frank can, uh, or excuse me, Secretary of State LaRose can uh, count some votes up there in, in, the, in the Buckeye State. Um, so uh, we, you've also discussed new actors. I heard Iran, China. Um, what can we, anything more we can expect from, from them? Do we expect any other players, any proxies to get, you know, kind of proxy actors to get in the game, um, kind of some bank shots? Uh, what should we kind of be aware of and, and from where? Go ahead, Rachel. You're unmuted. How's that? All right. Um, so one thing I think is, is interesting. So on uh, that we haven't really talked about is uh, the kind of co-opting of local news legitimacy that we've seen from uh, Iran in particular has has jumped on this bandwagon, um, but we also some saw this from Russia in 2016, but the idea of creating fake local news accounts on social media um, and building an audience off of those accounts um, in order to, I mean, one would guess, either spread disinformation in the short term, cause confusion, or like we saw in 2016, um, these accounts just kind of, they, it wasn't disinformation, it was audience building. So I don't know what the ultimate intention was there, but it, if there was a close election and you have all these followers and it looks like a local, a legitimate local news outlet, I mean, it doesn't take much imagination uh, to guess how you might uh, put some false information out there and cause, cause quite, uh, quite a stir. So I think that's uh, an important and interesting piece of this and that we've seen from from both Russia and Iran. Um, and then on, on the other fronts, um, we haven't quite, obviously there's interest on the hacking side uh, as well from China and Iran, or we wouldn't have, have seen those, those attempts that were. Um, hey back. Rachel, can I, can I jump in real quick and ask a question? Yeah. I've seen it in the chat. When you talk about hacking, do you you don't mean the actual hacking of our vote, our the actual voting machine, the outcome? You're talking about hacking of the systems, the voter rolls, the information. Like, you're right. Is that what you're talking about? Can you? That's a great question, and I apologize if I was confusing on that front. So, it it can be. Uh, you can hack a lot of things, right? Um, so you can hack uh, those those voter databases. Um, you can hack, you know, voter rolls um, as well. Dep it depends on like what type of voting machine you have as far as if that would be possible or not. Um, but then also when I'm talking about hacking and leaking, uh, I'm talking about hacking into systems like a campaign email account uh, that you would then grab those emails, distribute them to cause 
you know, chaos and disruption to a campaign. So I, I realize I'm using that term to cover a lot here. Can I, can I chime in with one, one comment there? Ra Rachel's right, there are lots of different things to hack, you know, just the hacking of campaign emails, DNC, RNC emails, but there is a real vulnerability to voter registration databases, voter rolls, voting infrastructure itself. I mean, we, we saw in 2016, the Russian government targeted all the entirety of, of the voting infrastructure. Um, and there are you know, plenty of other actors that have those capabilities, the North Koreans, the Iranians, the Chinese, others. Um, so you know, it, if I'm not mistaken, I think Tennessee is one of just a handful of states that does not have electron, uh, I'm sorry, paper ballot backups of electronic voting equipment. Um, and I would just say it's, you know, there's a reason why paper ballots, for example, are important as like an auditing purpose, because if there is a hack or a glitch in the electronic voting equipment, at least there is a verifiable way to try to square what happened. Uh, so, you know, there are, you know, discussions in many states, right, about how to improve security and voting procedures to prevent against exactly the type of operations, hacking operations Rachel's describing. So that's just, I just wanted to sort of chime in and make that point because I think it's, it's probably relevant to your audience in Tennessee as well. And one of the things we saw in 2016 is that actually um, the election systems of, in all 50 states were probed um, by Russian operatives. Um, so if you have information like that coming out, you want to be able to verify that even though their attempts were made, you know, not, the votes and tally rem remains unchanged. Yeah. And I, I know that Tennessee is changing uh, uh, to have paper for the August election. So they, they, they preemptively, they, they preemptively heard your, your, your message, Dave. And, and That's encouraging. Uh, have such an impact. So we're, we're coming up on 50 minutes here. Uh, I, I have one last question. I'm going to bring it all the way back to Tennessee. We went, we went all the way to, to, to China, Russia, and Iran. I'm going to bring it back to Tennessee and um, Secretary Hargan. Um, and he was, he, 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 I found another one of his quotes that he said he's trained, he, he's been training his election commissioners not to do things such as putting system passwords on post-it notes around election commission offices. Something as simple as that could, you know, there's a, maybe they do a, a, a zoom and buy the pass, their passwords right here on, a, on the back, right? And it's just as simple as that. What concerns you all uh, when you think through the vulnerabilities of the system heading into 2020? What keeps you up at night? Is it a macro trend? Is it something as simple as Chick-fil-A gift cards and a post-it note with a password that holds all the voter rolls heading in, you know, for, for a county? What's, what, what keeps you guys up at night? And what should we be, uh, as, as, as if we need something else to worry about, but what else can we worry about on top of everything else going on in this crazy world? I'll give Dave a little more time uh, if right, he. There's spin. I see Dave spinning over there. He's. Uh, I mean, so I, honestly, a convergence of all of these tools and tactics to create the most chaotic election night uh, that we could imagine is my worst nightmare. Um, one of the things I've been watching closely that uh, is of interest are these ransomware attacks on local governments and state governments. Uh, we saw in Louisiana that there was a ransomware attack where, um, you know, some, and, and at this point, 
these are malicious actors. There's no um, evidence that most of these, they're just opportunists. They're not necessarily state actors, but um, they can get into a system and shut it down until a certain amount of money is paid. And so what we saw in Louisiana is that in the November election, there was a ransomware attack shortly after the polls closed uh, in that gubernatorial election. And uh, although uh, the, the election systems were not impacted and the results weren't impacted, uh, it was enough of a scare and enough of a, of a problem that the conspiracy theories and disinformation kind of took it from there. And so that was a very small and, and more limited situation, but something to that effect um, makes me nervous. And what makes me nervous is that there are, are already voices on the left and the right claiming that you can't trust this process. It's all, you know, it's rigged in favor of who, who, you know, whatever candidate they, they support on the, you know, against whatever candidate they support on the left or the right. Um, and, you know, foreign actors like Russia are all too happy to seize on that narrative and blast it all over the information ecosystem. What worries me is that there could be an information operation that the Russian government runs claiming, ironically, that Russia probed, you know, and, and hacked voter infrastructure, voting infrastructure, and changed votes, even if they actually didn't. And then they'll seed an information operation making this claim and voices on you know, either side or, or one side with the agreed party will be happy to you know, seize, latch onto that and, and claim that you know, the, the results of the vote can't possibly be valid. Um, and then you have complete chaos in our democracy. Um, that really worries me um, because I think the Russians are not <laughs> above that, doing that. Um, and they won't have to change in actuality a single vote to, to have that sort of effect. So in short, even without a hack, they can still cause disruption, disinformation, and you shake up the snow globe enough to, uh, you know, come January, each side will say, no matter who wins, that's a, each side could say that's a illegitimate president. Exactly. And that's, that's all the more reason why right now, local, state and local election officials elected state and local officials need to be out there saying, here's what we are doing to ensure that that doesn't happen. Here are all the steps we're taking to protect the integrity of the vote now so that if that operation does happen in November, people can at least have more confidence that it's you know a bunch of BS. And just to add, add on to that point, I, um, it's, it's also, it's on state and local officials, but it's also on the broader community. We saw an example in North Carolina uh, where there was a fake Facebook page that was spreading some new news um, or some, some true news that was just kind of uh, aggregating from other local outlets. And then it was spreading some disinformation, but it wasn't harmful disinformation. It was just made up stories. And one of the, I think it was a local, um, local department, but one of the, uh, one of the uh, subjects of this made-up story saw the news, called uh, Facebook, and was like, this doesn't make any, like, this isn't real, this doesn't make any sense. They investigated, they took down the page. And um, it just goes to show you that it's not just for our elected officials to solve, but this is, if you don't see something, if you see something that's not right or not true, that that work starts today 
uh, and it is incumbent on all of us. See something, say something. Yeah. Well, great. Well, I, I've learned a lot. I hope our those, those folks that have joined, joined us today live have learned something and, and for the future. Rachel, do you have, Rachel and, and Dave, do you guys have any, any closing remarks before we uh, give it back to Pat? Uh, no, thank you. Just thank you so much for having us and for the opportunity to talk about all these issues. Yeah, this is really great. I mean, we, we need more conversations uh, across the country like this on a bipartisan basis. Um, so I really appreciate the World Affairs Council giving us a platform to, to engage your community on, on this issue. Thanks very much. Okay, well, uh, thank you. Thank you, Mark Braden, for leading a terrific discussion. Uh, we're now all better prepared for the coming attempts at chaos. And thank you, uh, Rachel Dean Wilson and David Salvo, uh, for bringing us this important conversation. And thank you for your work to secure democracy, an essential mission. Uh, we look forward to having you uh, here in, in Music City in the future. Uh, thank you to our attendees for joining us today and having such great questions. Uh, this is only the first of what will be a series of programs on election 2020. Uh, you can visit tnwac.org uh, to get our newsletter so you'll see what we have coming up. Uh, and while you're there, please join the World Affairs Council, We're the only nonpartisan educational organization in Tennessee that works to bring you global affairs awareness programs like this one. Uh, let me invite you to next Tuesday's programs. We do two webinars every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Central Time. Ambassador Dick Bowers and I bring you a weekly news review, and at 7 p.m. we have our regular speakers program. Next week, we'll be talking with Nancy Lindborg, president of the U.S. Institute of Peace. We'll talk with her about the role of USIP in bringing security and stability to troubled states and about the impact of the pandemic on peace building. Again, please consider becoming a TNWAC member or making a gift. Uh, thank you again to our terrific panel. It really uh, was uh, a stimulating conversation about uh, uh, troubles ahead in the, the democratic process that uh, we need to be aware of. Uh, we'll see everyone, everyone again uh, next Tuesday. I'm Patrick Ryan with the Tennessee World Affairs Council. Please be safe and remember, wash your hands. <laughs>